brought to you by CGTN Europe. I'm Stephen Cole. Welcome to the Agenda podcast. So far, Africa appears to have been spared the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic. The virus is certainly spreading more slowly across that continent than anywhere else in the world. This week on the Agenda podcast, we look at why that might be. We also look at the economic impact of the virus on the continent. To discuss the effect the pandemic has had on African countries, I spoke to the World Health Organization's Regional Director for Africa, Matsudisho Moeti. Dr. Moeti, many thanks for joining us here on the agenda. Trying to get an entire continent to self-isolate must be an almost impossible task, a Herculean task. How would you describe it? (laughs) Yes, I I do think Herculean is a a good word. But uh, luckily, this is a task that we are supporting governments to implement in, in countries In fact, our region constitutes uh, 47 countries, sub-Saharan countries plus uh, Algeria. And uh, of course, it was a very tough uh, job to do for the governments. They started very early, I have to say, in most of the African countries. And heads of state put in place some sort of all of government cross-sectoral platform the most relevant ministers who have to make decisions and make sure that action takes place around um, the the measures that were undertaken, including those that deal with transport. Of course, the ministers of health were very much the secretariat of these groups. Um, Those that deal with education, who had to make decisions about schools, um, those that deal with trade, etc. It was not easy. I I think it's very important to stress that... uh, These were tough decisions for governments to take and to implement. And it was also tough very much on the people. So from the outset, I'd like to appreciate African people's acceptance of the need for these measures, which were very much around supplementing some of the gaps in the public health capacities to identify cases Uh, trace their contacts and to isolate them, which is the core uh, interventions for for all of this. And we know that um, it's had a... And and we think that implementing these early, implementing these comprehensively in quite a few countries has had an impact in slowing down the evolution of, of the pandemic in many African countries, even if we are continuing to see an increase in the number of of cases. It's had a very uh, severe economic impact. Looking at the figures, the virus does seem to be spreading more slowly in Africa. And the reason for that, if if I've understood you correctly, is that people have been obeying the rules. Uh, Is that that right? Yes, I think there are several reasons for that. Uh, Indeed, people have, to a large extent, uh, responded positively and complied with these measures that were put in place by government. So staying at home, um, working, trying very hard, and it's been a challenge for African people in the way, in our way of living, to to do the social distancing when people are out together in families, and and we know that in some circumstances, low-income families, peri-urban areas, uh, keeping a distance from people is is simply very difficult because of, of the of the circumstances. We also think, you know, the the virus arrived in in Africa some weeks 
in some cases months after it had it had arrived in in Europe and of course uh, in Asia, and uh, the governments took action early. They were able to scale up some of the capacities pretty quickly. For example, at the beginning of February, we only had two countries that could diagnose this, this virus. And within a few weeks, we had established uh, diagnostic capacity working with our partners and, and the governments in almost all of the 47 countries in, in the African region. In addition, in preparing for uh, the Ebola outbreak, I would say that was that is, is just coming to an end in the north, uh, in North Kivu, in the DRC. Most countries, almost all the countries, had already put in place this point, point of entry screening, particularly in airports. So it was simply adapting that for the needs of uh, this, this COVID-19 that was carried out. And we've done a lot of work with countries in improving the way in which they address outbreaks. And, and African countries are needing to address outbreaks all the time of different uh, of different uh, diseases. So there was a, a basis already there. The Ebola had already started some preparedness activities going on. And then there was a need then to very quickly ramp up some key capacities like diagnostics uh, to, to deal with the virus. And I also think that if you like, the intensity of international travel in Africa might be less than in some other wealthier regions where people travel for business, for tourism, etc. So th th those points are, are, are well made, um, uh, Dr. Moetti. But I, I wonder, too, whether Africa as a continent has more important priorities than COVID-19. I'm thinking about widespread medical access to uh, care, and clean drinking water, these kind of priorities. Where would COVID-19 fit in that list? Uh, I, that's a good question. Uh, and, and, and I think it's very important to emphasize that it's not a matter of either or. We have to deal with all of these priorities at the same time. You know, when you have a pandemic like this, which is so threatening, it does, um, soak up, I would say, a lot of attention, a lot of the resources, simply because it also has an impact on a country's ability to respond to the other priorities. So if, if we have to help countries to provide basic health services, immunization for children, family planning services for women, making sure that mothers are delivered safely, the need to do that without uh, creating the opportunity for transmission of the COVID-19 then presents an additional challenge. So we countries need to address these at the same time, and we need to find opportunities in some of the work that's been done to respond to COVID-19 to also deal with the laboratory needs of the other diseases, for example, and, and find ways of integrating laboratory systems so that you can have your COVID corner, your yellow fever corner, and, and find ways to leverage some of these these resources. That's very much the way in which we're supporting countries to, to work. But it is very much a, a difficult uh, way of trying to make choices. And we're trying to ensure with partners like Gavi and the Global Fund that countries have the resources to address these multiple priorities at the same time. Yeah. It is not easy. I no, say. of course not. Um, again, I'm going back to the numbers, Dr. Moetti, and Africa has about 17% of the world's population, but only about 2% of confirmed cases. How much of that do you think is down to uh, a shortage of accurate testing? 
Um, yes, uh, as you know, there's been a, a global crisis, I would call it, in access to the supplies uh, for testing uh, all over the world. And because the virus arrived in African countries later, as um, the spread was happening, then the, this problem with having access to testing uh, kits, particularly, was becoming more and more acute. But, you know, we African countries had already established a, a way of um, responding to alerts before we started getting cases in the in the region. And I'm aware that thousands of alerts were tested and eliminated at the beginning. And then secondly, I think that the point of entry screening that I mentioned, the fact that everybody who arrived in an airport was having their temperature checked and their details uh, uh, collected and noted by, by the transportation travel authorities in countries made it possible for tracing cases and their contacts to be relatively easy in African countries. So the platform had already been established for this. It is true that if you look at the rate of testing across most African countries, it's less than has been the case in other countries, particularly due to this shortage. But I'd like to, to say a couple of things that make us understand there is a degree of underestimation, of undercounting of uh, cases, uh, we, we, we think. But we do not think that we have very large numbers of people who are undetected as cases and who may be dying of this disease. We have uh, an influenza uh, surveillance system in almost half of the countries in the region, which is keeping an eye on uh, flu-like symptoms and cases. And we have not seen a huge increase in this, which would make us understand that some of what might be thought to be flu is in fact COVID-19 simply because we can't test for it. And we've seen a number of countries like uh, Ghana and Senegal significantly increase their testing without a commensurate huge increase in the number of cases that are detected. South Africa, of course, is a, is a country that's tested the most largest number of people. And there they've seen a significant increase, particularly in the hotspots of Cape Town, Johannesburg. So to, to conclude, we, we have systems in place that uh, can carry out some sort of proxy identification it's certainly on a clinical basis of what could be COVID-19. And in one case, in, in Kano State, when uh, people in the community started seeing a, a, a number of cases of this unusual illness, uh, they reported this to the national authorities. So in many of the countries, we have at the community level, community health workers, and uh, in countries that have had outbreaks, people are sensitized to alerting the authorities of an unusual pattern of, of, of illness, which, which also triggers then the alerts and investigation by governments. So, so a good uh, uh, alert system, but uh, as you say, there has been a degree of undercounting. I, I'm looking at, at um, evidence from the Partnership for Evidence-Based Response to COVID-19. Now, that's, a, as you know, a public health consortium. And it's been noting, uh, in quotes, the true number of infections is likely to be far greater than is uh, currently known. It's estimate, and it's a rough estimate, I agree, uh, suggests a tally eight times higher. Now, would that figure tally with the World Health Organization? Um, we, you know, we, we've done some projections of what would be the numbers if 
the public health measures weren't working, if there was widespread uh, community transmission in, in, in African countries. I actually don't believe that we could have eight times the number of cases that are being detected in, in countries. It's not possible to, to say by what degree we, we, we estimate, the, if you like, the, the underestimation to be. But I, I, uh, from, from the work that we are doing with our colleagues and from the knowledge that we have of the type of testing that's being done, uh, we do not, I don't think that it's, it's as, as great what, what, a degree of underestimation as eight times. And lastly, uh, Dr. Moetti, uh, as we've agreed, Africa seems to be suffering a slower pandemic than uh, Asia and Europe. But how would you describe the potential for risk of the spread? I think the potential for risk of the spread continues to be there. Um, you know, we, we've had the measures that were put in place by governments are not measures that you can sustain for any length of time. And many governments are already working on easing some of the social and physical distancing measures. The virus is still there. The health systems of these countries, despite all the efforts that been made, that has been made to scale up, um, if you like, public health measures beyond the capital cities, continue to be relatively weak. And really, until we have a vaccine which is available and accessible in these countries and can be deployed quickly, targeting the most vulnerable people, the, the risk continues to be there. So our estimation is that countries will need to continue to put in place and scale up and expand these measures to identify cases quickly, very quickly identify their contacts and build the capacity to isolate these until they are no longer infectious to other people. So we will have to to live with this uh, way of, of working. And this is not like an outbreak that finishes in a, in a few weeks. It's something that will continue for some time, as I said, until we really start to have the most effective tool, a vaccine, we hope, available to be deployed in the countries. Of course, the COVID-19 pandemic is not only having an impact on health in Africa, but also on the continent's economy too. And many are worried that as the world's largest economies adopt increasingly protectionist measures to boost their own domestic economies, trade with developing countries will only suffer. Well, to discuss the virus's economic impact in more detail, I'm joined now by Dr. Dirk Willem de Velder from the Overseas Development Institute. Um, Dr. Tervelde, how would you describe the impact of the virus on trade in Africa? Well, thank you. Um, there have been major devastating effects on uh, trade in, uh, in, in Africa. Um, the effects were already beginning to be visible back in February uh, when there was an initial slowdown in China. There were major effects on global commodity prices, uh, including oil prices and the major oil producers um, in Africa, like Nigeria and Angola, um, they were suffering in a major way. Uh, but then by, so I would say, March, the uh, global recession uh, was coming. There was a global impact. Uh, and by then, uh, we were beginning to see um, uh, orders for garments being, uh, being dry, uh, drying up. Uh, we were seeing that uh, flowers uh, wouldn't be able to be sent to, to Europe, and they were actually rotting on, uh, on Kenyan flower farms, on Dutch auctions. Um, and so there's been a major effect. The hotel bookings 
um, were, um, uh, were were collapsing, uh, tourism ceased. Um, so all in all, there's been a major effect on uh, on trade. Uh, but I would also say that capital flows uh, have also been falling, and so like foreign direct investment is expected to fall by 25 to 40 percent this year. Remittances is expected to uh, to decline by about 20 percent. Uh, and whilst there's no financial crisis yet, uh, th there are some devastating effects. And we estimate that overall, the shortfall through trade and finance uh, in Africa will be at least $100 billion this year. And in sub-Saharan Africa, that is more than 5% of GDP. The cruel irony, uh, Dr. Tavelda, is that before the pandemic, things were looking up for Africa. Um, trade was increasing, poverty was falling. Is it possible to estimate how long it might take to those pre-pandemic situations across the continent? Well, in terms of uh, poverty facts, as you mentioned, um, uh, we will now see um, an increase in, in poverty uh, numbers, headcounts in, uh, in Africa. And uh, that's been uh, there after a long period of declines in uh, in poverty headcounts, and, um, and and we will also now see the first recession uh, in in Africa after a long period of uh, of, of growth uh, for more than two, 20, 25 years, and so we will see about um, five to ten years of development gains just being wiped away by one uh, one event. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the agenda. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher and Spotify. You can also find us on CGTN Europe Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. The most interesting questions. Are there other living beings beyond Earth? Will man or machine be in charge? Great question. Always have more than one answer. Well, hold on, uh, let me just draw up a list. And always come from more than one person. That's where the credibility lies. The concept of having a machinery which is alive and evolving didn't wait for us. The end of inequality of incomes and wealth around the world, can you imagine how difficult that is at the moment to achieve? Every episode, Stephen Cole, Murray Beveridge, and some of the brightest minds out there shed light on the answers to some of the most intriguing questions. There are two ways of looking at this. Machines can't really discriminate between civilian and military targets. The Answers Project. Maybe we need to just look at this in a bit more detail. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The Answers Project, a new podcast from CGTN Europe.